All right, here we go. Uh, we are back in Europe. Uh, the Mexican Revolution with its mixed, uh, but, you know, I'd say glorious result. <laughs> Victory, even in defeat, um, yeah. is done. And we are ready to return to Europe and some mass movements. Some of these early mass movements in Europe. Um, go take it away, Dave, because this one is pretty much almost all <laughs> yours. <laughs> well, among the sources I'm using is a collection of articles in a 20th century history magazine um, given to me by one of my university profs. And there was a really good article on the suffragist movement. And the timing is right. I thought, let's include this. So first of all, I had to figure out why do some people say suffragists and some people say suffragettes? And I found out there's an actual difference. Suffragists believed in a peaceful constitutional campaign to gain the vote for women. But in the early 20th century, these suffragists really failed to make significant progress and a new generation of activists emerged and these women were willing to take more direct much more militant action for the cause and their slogan was deeds not words these are the suffragettes to distinguish them from the others i like them already i thought you might <laughs> so this has relevance obviously for any activist movement you know tactics and all that sort of thing and then i looked up some outliers as well so a, a brief uh, glimpse it's not a history a brief glimpse at women's rights in europe i found out back in the 1700s that women could own property in sweden and if they owned property they were allowed to vote because whoever drew up the voting rules had, you know, based it on property qualifications. Uh, and I found out in 1755, the independent, very short-lived Corsican Republic under Pascal Paoli uh, gave women the vote. I mean, I already liked Paoli, but this is really ahead of schedule. Yeah, of course, a long time ago, you loaned me a uh, long, long time ago, like, I think maybe the end of high school, so mid-90s, you loaned me this book by, or you told me about this book by John Ralston Saul, Voltaire's Bastards. Oh, yeah. And one of the chapters, he compares Pascal Paoli to Napoleon. Obviously, he finds in favor of Paoli. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not, not that hard. Yeah, and of course, the French uh, came in and ended the Corsican Republic in 1769 and immediately rescinded votes for women. In their own French Revolution, we documented earlier how uh, Condorcet and several other of the philosophes proposed equal rights for women. <clears throat> the the you know reaction of the majority was laughter. It tells you how uh, how they stood. In 1791, French playwright Olympe de Gouges published the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen, as opposed to the Rights of Man and the citizen. Uh, she went to the guillotine during the terror. A year later, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft uh, wrote a vindication of the rights of women. She was the mother of Mary Shelley or Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. Uh, for her efforts, Mary Wollstonecraft Sr. was called 
a hyena in petticoats. There were uh, a few examples of women being granted voting rights. To my surprise, Hawaii oh. and Colombia. Wow, oh, look at that. But in both cases, they were either rescinded or annulled a few years later. Little, little experiments that didn't last. In 1864, the Australian colony of uh, Victoria, uh, some men made a mistake, I guess, in how they phrased the Electoral Act of 1863, and women were unintentionally enfranchised. So they voted in the following year's election. Uh, it only took them another year, the men, to amend the Electoral Act and correct their error. Oh, wow. Um, so th I noticed here there's like a break, <laughs> right? There's like the French around the French Revolution, yes. so Enlightenment kind of time, mm -hmm. and then we skip to 1860. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. there's <laughs> some bad some bad years in between. Well, yeah. In 1869, women got the vote in Wyoming, and I'm not entirely sure why. But that was the same year that John Stuart Mill published uh, on the subjection of women which was pretty big, pretty influential. I don't know if I mentioned it before. I think I did, but uh, during our New Zealand episode, that New Zealand was the first country to give women the vote and, and leave it there. And that was 1893. Just for a, a contrast, the last Swiss canton to allow women to vote was Appenzell Innerhoden, in 1991. <laughs> but Switzerland is the the democracy, right? It's the actual participatory democracy. Yeah. Why are they so backwards? Yeah. Yeah. I I would encourage uh, <clears throat> anyone just to, to look up a list of, you know, when women got the vote by country and, and be prepared to uh, be surprised. And you're, <clears throat> and you're right, the French Revolution was key. So when revolutions take place, women sometimes benefit. Uh, Finland freed itself from Russian domination in 1907. Women got the vote. Uh, Norway separated from Sweden. Same thing. And the 1911 revolution in China, coming up soon, uh, was accompanied by a measure for enfranchising women. Uh, unsuccessful, but, you know, just that the measure was included. <coughs> it is encouraging. The second thing about the movement that <coughs> was interesting is that there were so many things other than votes that women lacked. Uh, the right to a university education, that was a struggle by itself. And then after a separate struggle, the right to be granted a degree. The right to become medical doctors, uh, the right of a married woman to have property of her own. Uh, each of these had to be a separate battle. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of like Maria Montessori, right? The, I think we've talked about this mm -hmm. in our little <coughs> interlude on education a long time ago. But Montessori was allowed to go to school as a doctor. I think she may have gotten a medical degree, maybe not. But she, you know, was trained as a doctor, but then she was not allowed to practice as a doctor. So she ended up, they were like, ah, oh, just take care of children. But because she was so such a genius <laughs> you know she she turned her taking her caretaking of children into this whole theory of child development and what they need at what stage of life and and how to 
you know, teach them within this zone of maximum freedom in a prepared environment. So, yeah. So. Yeah. On that subject, I have to give a little plug to a Netflix series that we just finished watching. Uh, it's in Italian. It's called Lydia Poet, P-O-E-T. She's a lawyer. That is, until she argues a case and the men realize, wait, what are you doing here? Well, (laughs) she went to university and got a law degree. Right. And then she passed her bar exam. So she's a lawyer. No, women can't be lawyers. So they basically (laughs) pass an amendment to bar her from, you know, practicing law. Uh, It's only six episodes long, but they were very good. We enjoyed them. So it's a serious biopic. She doesn't then no, go and solve mysteries no, it, or something. It's a, yeah, she solves. Okay, she cool. solves cases okay. even though she's not allowed to practice law. <laughs> that sounds like yeah. Okay, that's good. But there is enough. You know, uh, one of the guys she's interested in is an anarchist, and you know, so it's oh, pretty yeah. uh, historically accurate in some senses, and it was enjoyable. Anyway, on that subject, so women are fighting for. I want to say equality, but my old tutor, Professor Brown, would have disapproved. In fact, <laughs> oh, yes, he, he told me. He told him. me. He told me that he he actually wrote to the women's liberation movement in Canada and said he corrected them. He said, "You don't want <laughs> equality; you want equity." <laughs> they didn't have the term mansplaining back then, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure. That, the, yeah, before I the fact, <laughs> response was all that warm. Like, thank thank you very much, Professor. But even you know. Ha- Equality in those areas, like university education or the right to become a doctor and the right to have property of your own, those would not have ended inequality. And and they wouldn't have benefited all women. If you're just talking about votes, uh, not all men have votes. So you have the social inequality on top of the gender inequality. So women involved called the suffrage movement the cause it was an issue which applied to all women but some saw further ahead and realized that with the vote women could win more rights third thing about the movement well there were there's a there's a a campaign for universal suffrage for men led by men who already had a vote. This is not the case for female suffrage. Women have no votes. They have to do it by themselves, and they don't have a large group of men helping them. In fact, they have even greater opposition. But the women's suffrage movement sort of dovetails with earlier mobilizations, like the temperance movement. And the temperance movement is not solely, uh, you know, religious and it's not solely anti-alcohol, women's rights are involved. You know, for, the ex- for example, the issue of husbands who drank their pay and brought nothing home for their wives and children. So there were many jobs where the man would be paid on Friday afternoon at the end of the day or Friday evening, and then he would go, you know, drink with his buddies and eventually make it home Sunday night, having spent all of his pay and there's nothing for the wife and children. So the temperance movement uh, was not just about alcohol, it was about women's rights um, and, a, and a lot more. Now, looking up the history of suffragists and suffragettes, it's pretty heavily concentrated on 
Britain and the U.S. It's not entirely fair. And I know you wanted to bring up. <laughs> well, only, yeah, like when, when people look at that chart, you mentioned people should look at a chart of when people get the vote, when women get the vote. Mm hmm. And uh, an awful lot of it is after the Soviet Union gives women the vote. <laughs> and everybody's yeah. like, ah, we can't let those, that, them have the vote, right? Yeah, and, it makes uh, us look bad. Yeah, and there, there's that. And then, um, you know, <laughs> the, other, uh, the other side of why the U.S. got it uh, earlier or, like, why there was a movement in the U.S. is because after the Civil War... Uh, when the formal franchise is extended to black people, there's an awful lot of white women who are like, you're giving the vote to black men and not white women. Mm -hmm. so, so that's a, <laughs> that's, that's a thing. Um, but uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, there's, um, there's like, I mentioned the the kind of bad decades. So like there were there were a lot of during revolutions, like you said, women kind of like step onto the world stage, right? And they're always like they play this huge role in in at critical moments of revolutions as you know mass organized uh, you know groups, and and so they have all this power in this revolutionary situation, and then things stabilize, and then you know the pa patriarchy forces are like yeah thanks for that <laughs> no back to the back to the kitchen for you right yeah um, we, we're not putting that in the textbook <laughs> yeah that's right but like you you I, we talked about that in the french revolution there was like a women's march right oh gosh in, yeah in the in the in the french revolution and, um so uh but there is like as um you know, industrial society and mass literacy and socialist movements, all of these things bring women more uh, into, um, you know, into like the public sphere, like they get them out of the house and uh, and they're needed uh, for for all these different activities in the economy and in the political economy. Like there are jobs, right? There are teach there's teaching um there's more girls going to school, which they don't want men teaching girls. <laughs> you know, we still as a society are, find it a little bit like, you know, most people and I think not most people, but like generally, culturally, it's like very more more accepted that women are going to be te school teachers than men. Right. Um, you, you oh, probably... just the idea, the idea of a male kindergarten teacher. Yeah, it's not or much less a male like daycare teacher or ECE. It's like that's yeah people parents mothers <laughs> you know find that a little bit uh you know they they all have, they have questions <laughs> it raises questions so there's marketing to women right uh there's so there's jobs uh teaching clerks uh you know lo lots of these kinds of jobs that women are moving into there's um marketing to women right as as we have mass produced um, goods, then there's also things that are specifically sold for women, uh, household products and stuff. And then there's like the women can get around more on bicycles, they say is a big help. Um, I think this is, I think what I'm telling you is coming, I've, I've made these notes, I think they're coming from uh, Hobsbawm, uh, Eric Hobsbawm. Mm -hmm. And there's a 1908, there's an Anglo-French international exhibition with a palace of women's work, <laughs> and it has needlework and crafts, a manuscript uh, by Jane Eyre, uh, Florence Nightingale's uh, Crimea carriage, 
remember Florence Nightingale, the famous yeah. nurse who were <laughs> who was in the Crimean War. Uh, there's women's tennis, which is introduced at ten, eight years after men's tennis. And then there are huge uh, social, you know, there are big figures in socialist and, and scientific uh, movements. You have Rosa Luxemburg, Alexandra Kolontai, Emma Goldman, Mary Curie. These are all like around this time, a little bit after this time. Yeah. But, um, but close. <laughs> yeah, I just have to make a note here on women going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we've been trained to think about middle and upper class women going to work. And getting jobs. If that international exhibition had a palace of women's work, they should have shown mine equipment or or yeah. fat work because yeah. lower class women, working yeah. class women, work. They never yeah. stopped. Yeah. yeah, you had to pass yeah. laws yeah. to prevent their exploitation. Right. This is a class. Uh, yeah. This is a this is a middle class thing yeah yeah so you read a history of world war one or or you know one of the great impacts of world war one is that you know women started going to work started (laughs) yeah 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 okay so i went to the u.s uh because they got started a little earlier in the 1850s uh, you had a number of women who were active in the abolitionist movement Mm -hmm. the 15th amendment says that no one should be denied the right to vote on the basis of color and women were completely ignored. I mentioned Wyoming in 1869, giving women the vote, and uh, they kept this odd, (laughs) unique uh, characteristic when Wyoming became a state. But the voting qualifications in the U.S. were decided by individual states. Uh, still are in some respects, or at least the uh, circumstances around voting, and that's why you have so many red states with obstacles to voting. So women could see that fighting for the vote state by state could take a very long time. That meant that their best bet was a constitutional amendment. Right. So when it came to strategy, it was a nationwide movement rather than you know, aimed at a state uh, governor. You cannot miss Susan B. Anthony. She was born in 1820. She was a Quaker. And at the age of 17 was already collecting anti-slavery petitions. She became very prominent in the uh, American Anti-Slavery Society. And she became a friend and partnered up with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a writer and activist who organized the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. This I've is, got some quotes from Miss Stanton for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, I got a couple too. Yeah, I know she's not uh, not entirely lovable. But this is the first convention called for the sole purpose of discussing women's rights. So that dark period in the 1800s you were talking about, well, these two were busy. Uh, together, they formed the New York State Temperance Society, Um, And this is after Susan B. Anthony was prevented from speaking at a temperance conference because she was female. Like, there's no other reason they didn't, uh, you know, cover it up, sugar it up or anything like that. They they just said, no, you can't speak. Uh, The two of them also worked against slavery during the Civil War, collecting uh, 400,000 signatures on a petition. They started a newspaper in 1868 called The Revolution to campaign for women's rights. 
and they were the main organizers of the American Equal Rights Association. They opposed the 15th Amendment because it didn't include women. And this split the movement because many women supported the amendment. And, of course, Stanton said some stupid things. You got them? <laughs> I've got them. Oh. <laughs> uh, I figured you would. <laughs> so here's a couple of quotes from some of these uh, suffragettes. So so my uh, what I, I'm, I'm giving you these quotes partly just because, uh, you know, it would be a shame to miss out on such juicy quotes. But, like, um, you know, this is the U.S. at this time. So it's... Um, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this movement and, and Katie Stanton in particular is somebody who uh, who objects to the idea of black people having the vote and not, or black men having the vote and not white women. So um, <laughs> one of her quotes in, in 1868 is if if woman finds it hard to bear the oppressive laws of a few Saxon fathers of the best orders of manhood. What may she not be called to endure when all the lower orders, natives and foreigners, Dutch, Irish, Chinese and African legislate for her daughters? Uh, think of Patrick and Sambo and Hans and Yong Tong, who do not know the difference between a monarchy or a republic, who never read the Declaration of Independence or Webster's spelling book making laws for Lydia Maria Childs, Lucretia Mott or Fanny Kemble. <laughs> There's yeah. another one. There's another one who's an outright advocate uh, for lynching. She's uh, Rebecca Latimer Felton, Georgia feminist from Georgia, and she says, you know, we're gonna give them the vote, and then they're gonna rape white women. Of course, uh, 1898. She says, when you take the uh, N-word uh, into your embraces on election day to control his vote and use liquor to befuddle his understanding and make him believe he is a man and your brother. Lynchings prevail because the cause will grow and increase with every election where there is not enough religion in the pulpit to organize a crusade against this sin, nor justice in the courthouse to promptly punish the crime, nor manhood enough in the nation to put a sheltering arm about innocence and virtue. If it requires lynching to protect woman's dearest possession from ramming, ravening drunken human beasts, then I say lynch a thousand and word a week if it is necessary. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. <laughs> There's also like uh, another feminist named Gilman. Uh, what's her name? Charlotte Gilman. She's also a feminist. She wrote a famous short story called The Yellow Wallpaper for New England Magazine. She's a novelist. She also wrote uh, Women in Economics, uh, a study of the economic relation between men and women as a factor in social evolution. And she has things like a very naturalized um theory she says developed and increased by use the distinction of sex increased in the evolution of species as the distinction increased the attraction increased until we have in all the higher races two markedly different sexes strongly drawn together by the attraction and fulfilling in their use the reproduction of species so she sort of believes that white people uh have more differentiation between uh men and women and uh and that's part of what makes them a higher race oh dear <laughs> yeah so the, the the women's movement split on this issue because you had some who obviously saw uh you know uh, equality for uh, black males 
as a good cause and a step in the right direction. And then you had Stanton and others who couldn't help themselves. She wasn't just a racist. She was an elitist. Uh, Oh, here's another. There's also a strategic argument that some of these people make. Uh, There's Belle Kearney from Mississippi, uh, officer of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. And Kearney says the same. The oh, the enfranchisement of women would ensure immediate and durable white supremacy honestly attained for upon unquestionable authority. It is stated that in every southern state but one, there are more educated women than all the illiterate voters, white and black, native and foreign combined. As you probably know, all of, of all the women in the South who can read and write, 10 out of every 11 are white. When it comes to the proportion of property between the races, that of the white outweighs the black immeasurably. The South is slow to grasp the great fact that the enfranchisement of women would settle the race question in politics. (laughs) So there's an expression, politics makes for strange bedfellows. And activist movements are going to attract people with opinions that um, are are difficult to build that alliance <laughs> yeah so i don't know the answer to that question but i do know that this split the women's movement for 20 years yeah. uh also earned stanton a rebuke from frederick Douglass. <laughs> oh good, um, good. i i just want to say i i got these from an essay by an uh, interesting uh scholar named tommy curry <laughs> it's got a harsh uh got a pretty harsh title the essay is called feminism as racist backlash how racism drove the development of 19th and 20th century feminist theory so these that's where i got all these quotes from just in case people want to look that up (laughs) yeah well i saw i saw a couple of those quotes especially the stanton ones i mean she kept working she wrote uh she was a primary author for the first three volumes of the history of women's suffrage Uh, She was also the primary author of the Women's Bible, a critical examination of the Bible based on the premise that its attitude towards women reflected the prejudice of a less civilized age. Oh, wow. Taking on the Bible. Yeah. Uh, In 1872, Susan B. Anthony was arrested for voting. Uh, She was convicted in a widely publicized trial, uh, but refused to pay the fine. And then the authorities decided not to jail her. Why give her more publicity? Uh, the Susan Anthony Amendment was presented to Congress in the 1870s and the 1880s, but it made no headway. There was significant opposition to su- women's suffrage from brewers and distillers who were afraid that women would vote for prohibition. And, of course, there was significant opposition from the southern states. Here's a nice quote. Uh, from tra- from Trevor Lloyd, uh, the Southerners were afraid that if black women got the vote, it would be more difficult to beat them up to prevent them from voting. Oh, God. Nice, eh? Oh, boy. So uh, in Britain, by contrast, there was still significant debate over universal suffrage for males. And this was during the the progress of the second reform bill in 1867. So they were discussing things like reduced property requirements, uh, votes for uh, householders in the boroughs uh, and lodgers who paid 10 pounds a year. So they can't meet the property qualification, but they have a certain income qualification. And John Stuart Mill, 
member of parliament, presented an amendment to the bill which would have opened the way for women. So the reform bill was defeated 194 to 73. And if that sounds lopsided, the minority number was actually encouraging <laughs> for reformers. We're on our way. Yay! So supporters of votes for women were mainly liberals, although Gladstone himself was uh, against it. You can guess how almost all of the conservatives felt, but their leader, Disraeli himself, was, uh, in quotes, guardedly in favor. So liberals are for, but their leader isn't. Conservatives are against, but their leader uh, maybe kind of, you know. So that's a bit strange. Question came up again in 1884 when the third reform bill was passed. They gave the vote to more men, householders and lodgers, redistributed seats to make electoral districts more equal. But 40% of males still didn't have the vote. And an MP named Woodall uh, moved an amendment, just as John Stuart Mill had, to include women. And that amendment, uh, that bill was defeated 271 to 135. But there had been changes to rules for election expenses. And the party organizations depended heavily on female volunteers, particularly for canvassing. So politicians needed women, and that forced them to be more polite. By the 1890s, a majority of MPs declared that they supported the idea of women voting. Of course, that didn't turn into specific bills. Uh, where have we heard that before? Yeah, I, you know, on principle, I'm in favor. I'm just not going to do anything about it. Uh, New Zealand, 1893, I mentioned. Uh, Australia, the highest level of interest in politics, came about when the states were discussing forming a union or a commonwealth of Australia, just as the Canadian provinces had done in 1867. South Australia and Western Australia had already given women the vote. So when the Commonwealth was formed in 1902, you have two options. Either South Australia and Western Australia have to take the vote away from women or the other states have to get to grant it. And they went with granting over the next six years. The other states in Australia gave women the vote in federal elections. I mentioned Finland in 1907, Norway in 1908. And in Britain, you had the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, run by a widow named Mrs. Fawcett, who kept up a steady but decorous pressure for many years. Basically, they asked politely. <laughs> there was an organization uh, that had the respectability needed to guide a wave of popular enthusiasm. Unfortunately, there was no wave of popular enthusiasm and the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies wasn't built to create it. They, they basically just, you know, had little tea parties and discussed it and then asked their male relatives, could you help us? Or they or they asked the politicians politely. And that sort of uh, failure uh, inspired the formation of the Women's Social and Political Union in 1903, led by Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughter Christabel. So if you're following uh, the women's suffrage movement in Britain, you cannot avoid the Pankhursts. Uh, they were not so decorous and they were not so respectable. 
they wanted to create that wave of popular enthusiasm. They wanted to raise the subject, and they were going to do it by making noise. So in 1906, there was an election in Britain. The Liberals gained an enormous majority. Many of them, as I said, were, were already sympathetic. So uh, two ladies, Christabel and Annie Kenny, questioned Winston Churchill and Sir Edward Grey, the foreign minister, about votes for women at an election meeting. They were thrown out. <laughs> and then they tried to organize a meeting in the street, and they were arrested. So now members of the WSPU, Women's Social and Political Union, started heckling the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance Minister. This is Herbert Asquith, later the Prime Minister. He was the cabinet member that most believed was the most opposed to women's suffrage. So they heckled him, they organized marches and demonstrations, and then they tried to demonstrate at the House of Commons and they were all arrested. <laughs> and like so many activist movements, the WSPU split largely over the question of tactics. Some women thought that they were going too far and some of the more moderate women left and they joined the Women's Freedom League. I, you know, it makes me think of the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's <laughs> Front from Life of Brian, all these little split splinter movements. Um, but all that did was give the Pankhursts and their ally, Mr. and Mrs. Pethick Lawrence, uh, a firmer grip on the leadership. Now, there's an interesting couple, the Pethick Lawrences. So Emmeline Pethick was born in 1867, the second of 13 children. She was a socialist and a suffragette. She worked at the West London Methodist Mission and founded a club for young girls. Then she started Maison Espérance, the House of Hope, a dressmaking cooperative with a minimum wage, an eight-hour day, and a holiday scheme. Okay. Robert Owen, a, su a suffragette, Robert, Robert Owen. Amazing, right? And again, Methodists. So the, the religious dissenters, so often Quakers and uh, Frederick Lawrence, born in 1871, was the son of a wealthy Unitarian family. One of his uncles was the Lord Mayor of London. He went to Eton and then to the University of Cambridge. He fell in love with Emmeline Pethick. And she agreed to marry him in 1901, but only after he shifted his political beliefs. So with that background, you know, you can tell. Uh, and he did. He did. He married an older woman and changed his political views for her. They kept separate bank accounts and they both changed their last names. She didn't take his. They hyphenated. So they both became Pethick Lawrence. Uh, he published several left-wing newspapers, including ones called Votes for Women. He served nine months in prison, and during World War I, uh, he was uh, basically arrested as a conscientious objector and worked on a farm. In 1923, he was elected as a member of parliament for the Labour Party. In 1942, he was leader of the opposition, and he became a baron in 1945, so despite his uh, socialist suffragette wife and his unusual lifestyle, he's still a pillar of the establishment, right? Unusual couple, unusual arrangement. 
So Emmeline Pethick Lawrence met Emmeline Pankhurst in 1906, and Pethick Lawrence became treasurer of the WSPU. She also went to jail in 1912. And like some of the other moderates, Emily, uh, Pethick Lawrence, the, the Pethick Lawrences, uh, disagreed with some of the more radical activism that the Pankhursts were adopting. So Pankhurst kicked them both out of the movement uh, not too long after they'd been arrested. The Pankhursts started organizing bigger demonstrations in Hyde Park and Trafalgar Square. And then they got arrested trying to rush the House of Commons. And members of the Women's Freedom League chained themselves to a grill in the House of Commons. The net effect of these, you know, uh, crazy things, it put women's suffrage in the spotlight. You know, people started thinking about it, obviously talking about it. By 1909, the some of these women were becoming even more militant. They were interrupting liberal speakers. Uh, they went beyond civil disobedience, you know, chaining themselves to things. Someone broke the prime minister's windows. And one woman tried to attack Winston Churchill with a dog whip. Still, most of the ones who were arrested were only trying to demonstrate more or less peacefully. And one of the women in prison, a Miss Wallace Dunlop, hyphenated Wallace Dunlop, uh, she gave the authorities a headache. She went on a hunger strike. And the example caught on. So at first, the government didn't know what to do with the hunger strikers. They they release them and then after a few months of losing steadily losing prisoners the authorities decided to force feed them uh that was a bad idea it backfired it made opponent opponents of women's suffrage look very bad and the suffragettes won more support than they had lost by adopting militant tactics uh asquith had become prime minister Uh, During the election of January 1910, he promised that there would be a free vote on a bill enfranchising women. But the conciliation bill that they came up with would only give the vote to women who met the property qualifications on their own. So it's not what your husband owns, it's what you own. Churchill and, and David Lloyd George denounced it, saying that it created an unfair advantage for conservatives. Because, of course, there are plenty of conservative ladies who own property. So I the thought base- Churchill was Churchill's not conservative. No, he was a liberal. Oh God! <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, things changed. <laughs> okay. All right. Things changed. We'll we'll see Churchill's career a little bit later. But you know, what do you think of that uh, government overreaction? It seems to be a tactic for activists to push the Absolutely. government into overreacting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a risky one, but it is, yeah, it does. It is a keystone of every uh, every subaltern strategy for sure. Yeah. So uh, was the, uh, do we are there other this? I think this is the first time we've talked about a hunger strike, you and me. I think so. Show. So was that something that has happened? Probably this one of the early notable hunger strikes of prisoners, because it's certainly a. It's, also another well-used tactic now, as as is force-feeding, unfortunately. Well, I don't think prison conditions were that great for men, but these are women, mm-hmm. and they are many of them middle-class women, right? Right, right, right. 
So you cannot do certain things with them. Yeah. And I'm I'm not sure it's the first hunger strike, but it's certainly the first one that worked. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the parliamentary debate was serious. Uh, it just they didn't government didn't give it enough time to pass. So, uh, you know, disappointed and angry women marched on the House of Commons. Uh, but you know, they were arrested, many of them, but not before they had been pushed about fairly severely by police and by male bystanders. So there's that lovely, you know, mob mentality where you you feel uh, entitled to join in with the police in, you know, beating up protesters you disagree yeah. with and women, of course. Uh, at that point, the militants relaxed the pressure, and I'm not sure why. Um, Emily Pankhurst went on a North American tour to talk about what militancy had achieved uh, for them. The the British example, though, didn't. I, I guess it helped the American movement recover. Uh, reading and hearing about what suffragists had done in Britain led to a revival in the U.S. 1910-1913, and another six states gave women the vote. So even though the American campaign was aimed at Congress and at the uh, Supreme Court, individual states could and, and did make changes. Back in Britain, a second conciliation bill was introduced. This one would have given the vote to women whose husbands had a vote. It reached a second reading but didn't get any further. And Mrs. Pankhurst, back from her tour, encouraged her followers to step up the action. Shop windows were smashed in Piccadilly, Oxford Street, and Regent Street. These are the fashionable shopping districts. This is when the Pethick Lawrences were arrested, even though they disagreed with the violence. So the, the Pankhursts uh, expelled them from the WSPU. Christabel, the daughter, stayed in Paris and directed operations. Mother Emmeline led the fight in Britain, was arrested over and over again, and she went on hunger strike repeatedly and wore herself down to a shadow. There was another Pankhurst daughter, Christabel's sister, Sylvia Pankhurst. She was also a suffragist, but she was working with the poor working class women of the East End of London and building up considerable support. You know, meanwhile, of course, her mother and sister were attracting upper class women and they were snobby about it. They told Sylvia to give up the East End. Uh, she refused. So they kicked her out of the WSPU. Oh, so there's some kind of class uh, division. Uh, it's Britain. Of course it's a class <laughs> division. So in 1912, the conciliation bill came up again, but it didn't get a majority. And then Asquith brought in a bill that would enfranchise all men and said that the Commons, the House of Commons, could have a free vote to add votes for women. So Asquith wasn't you know, as against, I, I don't know that this is going to help it pass, but he's, he's not making himself the obstacle. But when the amendment came up, the Speaker of the House ruled it out of order on the grounds that it changed the nature of the bill too much. It wasn't exactly Asquith's fault. You know, this sort of procedural obstacle had happened before. But it makes me ask, why does... Why did and why does British Parliament work like this? You have these procedural obstacles, these one-man filibusters. 
they're they're like built-in excuses for not doing things. Well, the suffragettes felt that Asquith had tricked them, that he'd lied to them. So they went back to violence. 1913 and 1914 were a pretty wild time. And in June of 1913, you had the famous incident where Emily Davison went to the Derby or the Derby. And she, uh, some say she threw herself in front of the king's horse. The king had a horse in the race and she stepped or threw herself in front of it. Uh, She was killed. And the whole event was captured on camera. Her funeral was a massive procession in favor of women's suffrage. She'd had a long career as as a suffragist uh, and a pretty independent one. She wrote letters to the editor of the Manchester Guardian and was published 12 times. She set fire to the mailbox outside uh, the Parliament buildings. She was arrested nine times, went on hunger strike seven times, and was force-fed 49 times. She tried to commit suicide to escape force feeding. She jumped out the, the, her prison balcony. And she acted on her own initiative. Even the WSPU, even the Pankhursts frowned on some of her activities. And there's still some question about what she was trying to achieve. She didn't tell anyone of her plans beforehand. So when she went out on the racetrack, was she trying to commit suicide or was her death accidental? Was she only trying to interrupt the race? And and I don't know. I just know she had a, a fascinating career as a suffragette. Encourage you to check her out, Emily Davison. Uh, the other suffragettes were busy too. Paintings were slashed, houses set on fire, telegraph lines cut. The militant suffragettes had escalated the movement from civil disobedience to guerrilla warfare. Oh man, and, you remember that editorial about like where are the Zapatistas? They're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine militant suffragettes like they're everywhere. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, they're they're dressed like polite women. So the government arrested them and then dealt with the hunger strikes by releasing them and then rearresting them as soon as they had recovered their health. Uh, They passed the Cat and Mouse Act. That's a nickname. It's not the actual name of the bill, but they passed an act to allow them to do this. So we're going to arrest you. And if you go on hunger strike, we're going to release you and then rearrest you when we when we pleased. Interesting how quickly this bill passed, right? <laughs> what about but, all the procedural difficulties to get yeah, it Yeah, where done? was the procedural obstacle to that bill? Yeah. Uh, in June of 1914, Asquith met with a deputation of women from Sylvia Pankhurst's East End organization. He finally seems to have recognized that they had serious social grievances, which they could meet much more effectively if they had votes. Of course, he wasn't about to immediately introduce a bill for enfranchising women because that would have looked like he was reversing his position. Which, you know, just wants to, uh, you want to tear your hair out. It it would have looked like he was doing what he was doing. Yeah, I can't be wishy-washy. Can't be seen to be wishy-washy. Of course, the war came along and interrupted everything. Most suffragists, and most suffragettes decided to postpone the struggle. But a few carried on. The war obviously did help the movement though. Uh, Middle and upper class women went to work. 
Um, women took over traditionally male jobs, making shells in factories, conducting buses, uh, even as auxiliaries in the armed forces. During the war, British war propaganda was primarily aimed at the U.S. So they portrayed the war as a struggle between democracy, the Allies, and autocracy, the Germans. Uh, we won't mention our ally, the Russian Tsar, who's as autocratic <laughs> as anybody. Yeah, uh, democracy, of course, implies universal suffrage. And Britain didn't have it. So <laughs> rather than appear hypocritical, in 1918, Britain gave the vote to all men at the age of 21 and to women at the age of 30. Oh, what? <laughs> well, that was, that was simply statistical analysis. This was so that women would not make up a majority of the electorate. Oh, my goodness. That, right? They, they didn't even give any excuse. They just, that was it? Just No, that was... That was plainly stated. <laughs> Listen, we've sent millions of men to war and we've gotten about a million of them killed. Uh, women are a slight majority of the population anyway, but now we have severely <laughs> depleted the male population and we don't want women to be a majority of the electorate. In 1928, they reduced the age for women to 21. In the U.S., the Susan Anthony Amendment finally got the necessary two-thirds of the votes in Congress. And it just narrowly failed to pass the Senate. Some uh, blamed the suffragettes for becoming more militant. Like It's your fault that it didn't pass. After the 1918 election, the amendment finally passed both houses. Now it needed two-thirds of the state legislatures. It was approved by 36 states surprisingly easily the naysaying states were of course the southern states not a huge surprise and that led to the 19th amendment which forbade political discrimination on the basis of gender there's the canadian example and it's even more cynical uh i enjoyed teaching this in canadian history class uh this was in the textbook so Canada had suffragists, uh, including the famous five, Emily Murphy, Henrietta Muir Edwards, Nellie McClung, Louise McKinney, and Irene Parlby. If you look up the famous five, you'll see that each of them had uh, really interesting careers as suffragists, but also as, you know, the first woman to... Uh, run for office the first woman to be elected can i just uh i have two little things one is russia i guess they got this the vote women got the vote in the february revolution not even the october one. Oh, is okay that, is that right i don't know it looks like yeah it looks like 1917 all right um and then uh and then canada i'm just looking up this this little i just googled or, or duck duck go search but it's like when women got the vote in 50 countries and Canada's entry, I have to read you, it says, in 1917, uh, the right to vote was awarded to the majority of Canadian women, with the exception of Indigenous Canadians, both male and female, who did not win the right to vote until 1960. Oh, there you go. So. Oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there are other groups of Canadians who did not get the vote. Uh, Japanese Canadians had to wait quite a while, male and female. 
anyway, but the, yeah, the majority of women. So here's here's the cynical story. Uh, during the war, obviously, the question of votes for women was overshadowed by the conscription crisis. Government was trying to send as many troops to the front as they could, but the pool of volunteers had dried up. And recruiting efforts in Quebec had not gone well. It, it was a pretty tough sell, you know, go overseas and fight for Britain. That's a tough sell in Quebec. So Prime Minister Robert Borden, conservative, wanted conscription, but he had to win the 1917 election first. So he cheated. The government passed the Military Voters Act, allowing soldiers overseas to vote. Now, this is unprecedented, never been done before, but obviously the soldiers overseas are going to favor conscription. The more guys you get over here to help me, uh, you know, the better. The government also passed the Wartime Elections Act and gave the vote to women, but only certain women. The wives, sisters, mothers, and daughters of men serving overseas. So if you were directly related oh, wow. to That's... a soldier, you got the vote. Everybody else, no. Uh, by these methods, Borden won a large majority of 153 seats in the House of Commons. The Liberals, led by Sir Wilfrid Laurier, opposed conscription, and they won only 82 seats, 62 of those in Quebec. Okay, obviously, once you've done this, the thin edge of the wedge, Suffrage is going to have to be extended to other women after the war. But that didn't end the political discrimination. The famous five petitioned the government to name women as senators. So for those who don't know the Canadian political system, it's a little bit like the British. Members of the House of Commons, members of Parliament are elected. But senators, our equivalent of the House of Lords, are appointed. They're picked. So the famous five said, you could, government, really help end political discrimination by naming a number of women as senators. The government's reply was that they couldn't, because the Canadian Constitution specifically says that only qualified persons could be senators. And the famous five said, but there are plenty of qualified women. And the government said, no, no, you don't understand. It's not the qualified part. It's the person's part. Oh, no. <laughs> Women were not legally persons. Oh, no. Yeah. So this started the persons case. The famous five took it to the Canadian Supreme Court and lost. But then there's this little interesting procedural obstacle that can be reversed. So the head of state in Canada is the British monarch. So we have a prime minister, not a president. So the actual supreme head of the Canadian government is now King Charles III. Uh, his face will probably soon be appearing on our money, unless we make a decision to stop doing that. <laughs> but, you know, if you, if you look at our money, it's got Queen Elizabeth's picture on it. She's our head of state. Uh, she simply lets our prime minister run the country and doesn't interfere. And if she did interfere, I'm sure there would be you know, procedural obstacles to prevent it. But in this case, in the 1920s, the famous five went over the heads of the Canadian Supreme Court. They went to Britain and they appealed to the British Privy Council. It took years, 
But the British Privy Council finally overruled the Canadian Supreme Court and said, get, get with it. <laughs> well, they found out who was really in charge. I guess. Uh, so you wanted to bring up Germany, too? Um, what's Germ- Is Germany the 1919 revolution? Is that when they get the Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so again, revolutions coming in handy. <laughs> so many of these women uh, had interesting attitudes. So you go from the Elizabeth Cady Stantons and, and the Pankhursts with their racist and elitist attitudes, but you find a number of these suffragists on the right side of a number of issues, uh, including the idea of war itself. So we're doing this series and we're looking at all of the things that led to World War One, with some detours to exotic locations outside of Europe. But I think it's worth noting that there were plenty of people in Europe and, and, and around the world who were opposed to the idea of war and actively tried to prevent it. So pacifists, and here I, I relied heavily on uh, Macmillan. She's got some really good stories of individuals to illustrate the types of people who were opposed to war, uh, the reasoning, you know, the reasons why they were opposed, and then the methods that they adopted to get their point across. So here's here's one of her thumbnail sketches. Bertha Kinski came from a noble Czech family, but her mother was middle class and 50 years younger than her father. So General Kinski married a woman 50 years his junior, uh, who was not a noble. So the rest of the Kinski family never accepted Bertha's mother or Bertha herself. They they referred to her as a bastard, an illegitimate child. So she had to find a way to make a living. And in 1875, she became the governess for the von Suttner family in Vienna, which immediately had me thinking of, you know, the sound of music. One of the sons, Arthur, fell in love with her. The romance was discovered. She had to leave. She went to Sweden and became private secretary to a fellow named Alfred Nobel. The rich manufacturer. You've heard of him a little bit. (laughs) Rich manufacturer and inventor of dynamite. Dynamite. Kaboom. He felt bad about that and then founded a uh, a peace prize. uh, You know, to support people who were actively uh, against the war. Like, and, and it's gone on. This Peace Prize has got, got such a great tradition. Kissinger's won it. Uh, yeah. Obama's won it. So it's been, you know, it's been great. It's rewarded people for peace. I don't know things. if you can blame Alfred Nobel for that. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, anyway, after a few months working for Nobel, uh, Bertha Kinski went back to Vienna and eloped with Arthur von Suttner. They went to Russia. They ended up in the Caucasus. Lord knows why. Uh, They struggled for money. Uh, Arthur gave writing lessons and French lessons. And Bertha discovered a talent for writing. Now, two years after they moved there, the Russo-Turkish War broke out, 1877. And Bertha seems to have seen some of it firsthand. Uh, The couple moved back to Vienna in 1885. And she wrote a novel called Lay Down Your Arms. It was apparently heartrending and melodramatic. 
well, 19th century novels, long and melodramatic. Uh, her, in her story, a noble woman suffers through uh, ruin and cholera. Her husband dies in battle. Uh, sorry, financial ruin and cholera. Her husband dies in battle. She remarries, only to have her second husband go off to fight in the Austro-Prussian War. She goes in search of him. She sees the horrible conditions of the wounded. They flee to Paris, where her husband is shot by the commune. Uh, Tolstoy panned it. He said... Uh, oh, deep- so it's kind of anti It's like suffragist, but anti-revolutionary kind of thing. At the same time. Well, she is a noble woman. <laughs> or, or wants to be. Uh, Tolstoy panned it. He said, deep convictions, but untalented. Uh, that didn't matter. Obviously, it became a huge success and was translated into many languages. She was a, a talented publicist and lobbyist. She founded the Austrian Peace Society in 1891. She was active in the Anglo-German Friendship Committee. She wrote articles and books about the dangers of militarism and the human cost of war. She spoke at conferences and peace congresses, and she bombarded world leaders with letters and petitions. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt invited her to the White House. She persuaded the Prince of Monaco and Andrew Carnegie to support her work. She was always, she was somehow always short of money. But her most important patron was Alfred Nobel. So he... He was worried about his invention. He invented dynamite for mining and engineering, right? Uh, maybe he yeah. should have seen its, you know, weapon potential, but... I don't uh, blame him. I don't blame him for that. I, you, I, I think, like, there's a difference between inventing dynamite, which is dual use, and inventing something like the machine gun, right? Yeah, single, you can't you can't purpose. use a machine gun for mining <laughs> or harvesting or yeah, yeah no. Uh, Nobel said, "I wish I could produce a substance or machine of such frightful efficacy for wholesale destruction that wars should therefore become altogether impossible." And that's where I think, oh, Alfred, you're doing better before that. Let's invent some weapon so terrible that it would never be used. Hmm. <laughs> well, I guess we have some of those just sitting around. <laughs> yeah, doing just no harm there. <laughs> we sure we sure have that, those weapons now. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> Nobel died in 1896, but he left part of his wealth to endow the Peace Prize, which Bertha Suttner won in 1905 after a big self-promotion campaign. <laughs> uh, she was a social Darwinist, but she believed that the goal of evolution was peace. And many eminent scientists agreed with her. Um, It's a funny argument. Many social Darwinists believe that life is struggle and therefore war is part of the process. And that war uh, somehow culls the weak and unfit from humanity. Whereas she pointed out, war kills off the best and the brightest and the physically fit. You're not sending, you know, your your least physically yeah. impressive specimens to go to war. So yeah. war is biologically counterproductive. <laughs> you know, that's funny. Both both uh, both of them appeal to social Darwinism and to make the opposite 
argument. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen this survival of the unfittest argument. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's quite obviously if you're a social Darwinist in favor of war, you're not examining it very closely. Uh, Europe had enjoyed long periods of, I would say, almost peace between the major powers. Uh, there was, you know, a brief war between German, uh, Prussia and Austria and then the Franco-Prussian War. But these were short, uh, quickly over. Uh, and nobody really. Yeah, they call it they you know this period of uh, it's it's one of the one of my major objections to the way history is taught and discussed is like they call this period of just unbelievable colonial extension and and mass murder uh, the century of peace right <laughs> like that's that's actually yeah. what they call it yeah so we're going to ignore couple of major wars we're going to ignore the frequent wars between russia and turkey yeah. uh we're going to ignore any war that is not you know this part of our Africa, criteria india 18 and seven, well those are called the little wars yeah small wars small yeah, wars. little <laughs> wars so they're not that bad but everybody could see the benefits of peace material advancement scientific and technological progress uh and all of europe was now economically linked between 1890 and 1913, British imports from Germany tripled. British exports to Germany doubled. France's iron ore went to German steel mills. Britain was still the economic center and everybody had investments flowing through London. So there were financial experts who were pacifists. They predicted that a war would lead to a collapse of international markets and a cessation of trade. Some of them even, you know, cooked up scenarios where if the war was, you know, longer than six months, governments would not be able to get credit and food supplies would run out. European powers would do so much damage to their own economies that it would only benefit the U.S. and Japan. Oh, wow. Europe is getting... <laughs> the leadership of the world. That's getting closer to the mark, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, Ooh, that's a perfectly goodness. accurate prediction. Um, Macmillan mentions another interesting guy, uh, Ivan or Ivan Bloch. He was uh, a Polish Jew who converted to Calvinism, strange, uh, a banker and a railway financier. So he approached the question of war, obviously from an economic point of view. He published a six-volume collection of the economic arguments against war, but he also included the military ones. Um, fascinating guy who saw the future of warfare more clearly than anybody. It, it takes a banker and a railway financier to understand war while all of the military officers and observers can't see what's right in front of their faces. So Bloch said modern industrial countries could raise and equip enormous armies. I mean, they were already in the process of doing that. Quick firing artillery, machine guns and entrenchments gave the advantage to the defense. I mean, we Obregon saw it in the Mexican Revolution, but yeah. so did this guy Block. Sometimes and, it takes a pacifist to see how war, how war would go. <laughs> he he predicted that the next war would be on a massive scale, that it would simply eat up resources and manpower. The result would be a stalemate 
which would eventually destroy the the societies engaged in them. Wow. Wow. He told W.T. Stead, the British journalist, yeah, that guy that we've seen <laughs> all over the place, right? Bloch said there will be no war in future because it has become impossible. It is clear that war means suicide. Now, Bloch and, and many of the other economic argument uh, people were wrong about one thing. They didn't think the stalemate could last for long. He didn't think that countries could keep up a massive effort indefinitely. There weren't enough resources. There wouldn't be enough farmers in the fields. There wouldn't be enough workers left in the factories. Bloch attended the first Hague Peace Conference in 1899, gave lectures, and handed out copies of his books. In 1900, he paid for an exhibit at the Paris Expo to show the difference between past wars and future ones. He founded the International Museum of War and Peace in Lucerne, Switzerland, uh, before he died in 1902. So there's a rich philanthropist who put his money and efforts into the pacifist cause. Uh, here's another thumbnail sketch. Norman Angel, Angel with two L's. Uh, he quit school in, at the age of 14. He was a cowboy, an irrigation ditch digger, a mail carrier, and a prospector for gold. Eventually, he became a journalist in the U.S. Uh, he moved to be a correspondent in Paris, where he covered the Dreyfus case. From 1905 to 1912, he was the Paris editor for the Daily Mail. And in 1909, he published a pamphlet, which grew longer and became a book, entitled The Great Illusion. So Angel is known for this book, The Great Illusion. He challenged the opinion that war could be profitable. That might have made sense in the past when armies could carry off the spoils of war. But Angel suggested that in modern times, war weakened the nation, not least by killing off so many of its best men. He said France was still paying the price for the wars of Louis XIV and Napoleon. But in the present, defeating your enemy is also destroying the market for your goods, so essentially hurting yourself. Militarism, he said, was dangerous, and building up your army for supposedly defensive purposes only increased the tensions that made war more likely. Oh, this is like uh, like uh, Einstein said, right? You you can't uh, you can't something like you can't wish for peace and prepare for war or something like that. Yeah. The King of Italy read his book, so did Kaiser Wilhelm. Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey, leader of the opposition David Balfour, and even Admiral Jackie Fisher all read his book. For all of his tough talk, Jackie Fisher didn't want a war. His attitude was, if it comes, I'll fight all out, but I prefer it didn't come. In 1891, an International Peace Bureau was established in Bern to bring together national peace societies and religious groups like the Quakers. There were peace crusades, petitions to governments, international conferences. In 1889, 96 members of parliaments from nine different countries met in Paris to found the Interparliamentary Union to work for the peaceful settlement of disputes between countries. By 1912, they had 3,640 members from 21 countries, including the U.S. and Japan. And that same year, 
the first Universal Peace Congress met. There would be 20 of these peace congresses before 1914. And the American Secretary of State opened the 1904 Congress in Boston. German Chancellor Bülow welcomed a meeting of the Interparliamentary Union in Berlin in 1908. Now, he thought that pacifists were fools, but the meeting would provide an opportunity for destroying certain anti-German prejudices. So a, a public relations move. Germany was an outlier in all of this peace movement stuff. The German peace movement never had more than 10,000 members, most of them from the lower middle class. It did not attract eminent university professors, leading businessmen, or aristocrats. In Britain, the peace movement had all three represented. Germany, not. The German churches denounced pacifism, declaring that war was part of God's plan for mankind. German liberals, not interested in peace either. They were still celebrating the military victories that had unified Germany. And even the German left, the socialists, voted for army and navy budgets. So it's, it's interesting that Germany is unlike the other European countries in this respect. German-speaking Austrians had opposed war in the 1860s and 70s when they were getting beaten, but they now supported conscription and a more active foreign policy. And in Russia, uh, you know, the only pacifists are fringe sects like the Dukubors, although Macmillan says that Tolstoy could be considered a peace movement all on his own. So the strongest yeah. peace movements were in the U.S., uh, Britain, and France. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we'll we'll do a separate issue or a separate um, episode on just the socialists, right? And the oh, whole yeah. debate inside the socialist movement about it. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, in those uh, three countries, there were 45 new peace movements between 1900 and 1914. Uh, Andrew Carnegie, the Endowment for International Peace, uh, the progressive movement, they were working for slum clearances, for temperance, for public ownership of utilities, but also international peace. Uh, w William Jennings Bryan, I think you've heard of, ran for president three times. He's the cross of gold guy, right? Yep, but he also yeah. became famous giving a, repeatedly giving a lecture entitled The Prince of Peace. <laughs> now, he never became president. Um, but in 1912, he became Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson. Right. And Bryan tried to persuade countries to sign cooling off treaties, uh, basically promising not to declare war on each other for at least a year and instead refer their disputes to arbitration. Oh, so was he involved in labor? They used this in unions all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, he definitely was. Yeah. Um, he got 30 countries to sign up. Uh, not Germany. So in the in the U.S. and Britain, uh, again, the religious groups were prominent Quakers. In France, though, it's funny, the, the pacifists were usually anti-clerical. Remember the Dreyfus affair? Yeah. The church supported the army without question. So anti-clerical and pacifist tended to be the norm in, in France. And there were some 300,000 French 
involved in the peace movement. So Jesus would support the war. Like in terms of what would Jesus do? I I get the feeling that God the <laughs> Father would support the war and Jesus would be saying, you know, can't we localize the conflict or you know I don't know. are the peacemakers? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're being selective now. You can't do that. <laughs> The, the pacifists didn't always agree on how to prevent a war. Uh, some thought that democracy would bring peace based on this reasoning that democracies wouldn't fight each other. Oh, my God. That's still a <laughs> thing they teach in university political science. It's just it's oh, really? just awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, it's bad. Uh, some pacifists suggested disarmament. Uh, some wanted an end to secret treaties and secret diplomacy. But most agreed that arbitration could work. So, yeah, the the union, the workers uh, model could apply to countries. So year after year, the Universal Peace Congresses passed resolutions calling on governments to set up a workable system of international arbitration. There were a few bilateral agreements um, and about. Something around 150 settlements were reached by arbitration after 1890. So it was done and it did work. Yeah. The trouble is, uh, you know, what Lenin identified as how can you decide on who wins the arbitration unless you test the relative strengths of the different parties? And then that requires war, right? So. Well, a number of disputes that didn't need to result in war. The Dogger Bank incident, arbitration, <laughs> quite, a, quite a few. Mm -hmm. In 1898, the Tsar invited the world powers to meet and discuss the grave problem of the unprecedented increase in armaments. Uh, this wasn't idealism. This was because Russia was falling behind in the arms race. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So the other European governments were lukewarm or, uh, you know, downright hostile, but they had to deal with public pressure. There's that, you know, PR campaign. So the Kaiser said, I'll go along with the conference comedy, but I'll keep my dagger at my side during the waltz. <laughs> and King Edward VII said, it is the greatest nonsense and rubbish I ever heard of. <laughs> So the Germans went to the conference intending to wreck it, if if they could get away with it without taking all of the blame. So their delegation head was Georg Munster, the ambassador to Paris, who disliked the whole idea of the conference. And their delegation included Karl von Stengel, a university prof who had just published a pamphlet condemning disarmament, arbitration and the whole peace movement. So you know, maybe they hoped he would be convinced once he saw yeah, sure, the whole process sure. in action. <laughs> we're we're going to have a meeting to abolish the slave trade and you send slave traders as your reps. Uh, Austria-Hungary was just as unenthusiastic. France was more in, inclined to support Russia, but uh, Del Casse didn't want delegates to vote for any resolutions that might imply that France was giving up hopes of peacefully regaining Alsace-Lorraine. Uh, the British sent Jackie Fisher as one of their delegates, the Admiral. He was uh, yeah, interesting character. They were willing to discuss arbitration, but they had no interest in disarmament. Uh, 
And the American delegation included Alfred Mahan. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who theorized who wrote the about book the influence of sea power on history. Yes, that guy. Americans. Who would rule the world forever. <laughs> yeah. So the American position was that their army and navy were too small to worry Europeans. Yeah, relax. So we don't have to disarm. <laughs> the British military att- attaché uh, commented on that. The French admiral remarked to me that the Americans had destroyed the Spanish navy and commerce and now wanted no one to destroy theirs. <laughs> yeah. Just kick that ladder down after you've climbed up, right? Exactly. So 26 nations sent delegations, including China and Japan. Uh, They met in The Hague in the Netherlands. Peace activists like Suttner and Bloch also attended, and the Dutch royal family lent one of their palaces for the conference. The conference did achieve some things, uh, a moratorium on the development of asphyxiating gas, a ban on... Which was used in World War I. Well, the moratorium didn't last. Correct. Uh, a ban on dum-dum bullets. And they forbid the throwing of projectiles out of balloons. Like bombing, basically. Yeah. So uh, one out of three of those lasted. The dum-dum bullets were uh, interesting. You know, World War I, uh, we're going to use poison gas, but we won't use these bullets because they're they're bad. There was uh, an international agreement on rules for the treatment of prisoner, uh, prisoners of war and civilians. So the Hague Conventions. Uh, they also agreed on a convention for the Pacific Settlement of International Disputes with provisions for commissions of inquiry. As I say, they settled the Dogger Bank incident in 1905. And they also set up a permanent court of arbitration in the Hague. Uh, Andrew Carnegie provided the funds for the Peace Palace, and it's still the home of the Hague Court of Arbitration. The Germans were going to oppose this, but they didn't want to be the only ones opposing it. But Germany managed to lose the conference anyway. And by lose, I mean (laughs) embarrass themselves. Are you you surprised? One delegate, uh, an army officer, made a speech saying that Germany could easily afford its defense spending and that every German saw military service as a sacred and patriotic duty to the performance of which he owes his existence, his prosperity, and his future. Oh, my goodness. That's a little over the top. (laughs) The German delegation added so many exceptions to the final agreement that one journalist said it looked like a fishing net with many holes. And then the German government expressed public satisfaction with the happy conclusion of the conference, even as their delegate, Professor Stengel, was loudly denouncing it. It's just, you know, one more example of the unnecessarily clumsy German diplomacy. So the end result is everybody left the conference thinking that Germany was the most belligerent (laughs) and uncooperative power in the world. Yeah. They set up another conference for 1904. It was postponed to 1907. By then, the naval race between Britain and Germany was heating up. British Prime Minister Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman suggested that arms limitation be put on the agenda. But this is a guy that also said the Royal Navy had always been a benevolent force for peace and progress. 
many governments uh, despised the peace movement. Uh, Foreign Minister Ehrenthal of Austria was against it, he said, because the peace movement was against heroism. And heroism, as we all know, is essential to the monarchical order. Russian Foreign Minister Izvolsky said that disarmament was an idea of Jews, socialists, and hysterical women. (laughs) Chancellor Bülow told the Reichstag that Germany had no intention of discussing limitations on armaments, and he was answered by laughter and cheers. Even British journalist T.S. Stead changed his mind. He had been organizing a peace uh, crusade to put pressure on governments, but he swung around to become a fervent advocate of dreadnoughts. Uh, Fittingly enough, he was a passenger on the Titanic in 1912. Uh, The British, after a conference session that lasted barely 25 minutes, the British proposed a resolution that said it was highly desirable that governments should resume serious study of this question. (laughs) It passed unanimously. Oh, good. (laughs) So the whole conference... Uh, widely seen as a failure. I mean, there are some minor improvements to the rules of war and the treatment of prisoners, but everything else was widely seen as a failure. Uh, They had a third conference planned for 1915. And with the pacifists, you get the same issues with the suffragists, with many activist movements. Many, many pacifists looked to the socialist parties to achieve results. Yeah. Okay, not all. Bertha Suttner was too snobby to reach out to the socialists. But in return, Karl Liebknecht was contemptuous of the peace movement. <laughs> well, <laughs> not uh, not unlike his right-wing counterparts in Germany, right? There's nobody... nobody is. Yeah, but one wonders if the socialist parties had collaborated with the peace movement. If I know. So there were uh, some well-intentioned people. There were some productive ideas, you know, members of parliament from different countries meeting. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the court of arbitration, things like that. There were some good ideas out there. Unfortunately, not strong enough, not deep enough. Yeah. Yeah, and we will certainly get back to the socialist movement, but we are we are going back around the world, right? We're going to do some more revolutions. There was a revol. We've mentioned them. We've uh, we've spo- what do we call Easter egg? Is that what we call foreshadowing? Uh, we've talked about the Persian Revolution, the Portuguese Revolution, China. So we've got to go. We've got to go on a revolutionary tour again. <laughs> yeah, be- well, partly because of the timing. Yeah, the chronology. Um, And we'll come back to the European crises uh, after that.